tonight's top stories in a manner that may leave you questioning the very fabric of reality. Mandela freed from prison but still in a cage of injustice. BBC broadcasts, robots running amok in Czechoslovakia. London University, the first secular university or a den of iniquity. And later in the program, a special report on the mysterious disappearance of the world's supply of pickled onions. Those are the headlines, the news but not as you know it, Jim. News Bang, taking the fizz and fluster out of fake news. 1990. And we begin with a tale of hope and freedom as South African activist Nelson Mandela is released from prison after 27 years behind bars. The man known as Mandela in the wind was serving time for his anti-apartheid stance, which some claim he'd stolen from fellow inmate Fats Domino. His release has been met with jubilation across the world, except for the small town of Apartheidsville, where locals held a candlelit march in protest at their local bingo hall. One resident, Enid Clenchbottom, said, It's political correctness gone mad. What next? Giving them voting rights. Mandela spent his final years at Drakenstein Correctional Centre, or Drakey to its inmates, where he reportedly honed his skills at table tennis and forgiveness. His cellmate, Trevor McFadden, recalled, He was always ranting on about unity and rainbows, bloody nuisance. Now free, Mandela vowed to pick up where he left off dismantling apartheid, an ancient pagan holiday celebrating discrimination based on cup size. He went on to become South Africa's first black president since Richard Nixon resigned amidst pigmentation scandal. 1938. 1938, and the BBC unleashed a terrifying new menace on an unsuspecting public science fiction. Carol Capek's play RUR, or Robots Unlimited Reckoning, was broadcast live to the nation's drawing rooms, introducing the word robot into our vocabulary and nightmares. The Czech writer's dystopian vision of a world run by tin-pot dictators. I mean, I mean where household appliances rebelled against their human masters, sent shivers down spines across Britain. The story follows Helena Glorybox, a plucky governess who falls in love with her vacuum cleaner before realising it has no off-switch or soul. She escapes to warn others, but not before uttering the immortal line, Beware the beeping of Marvin Daleson. The play gripped millions, many cowering behind their Morris chairs as robots stiffly lurched across black and white screens everywhere. Science fiction would never be boring again. 1826. On this day in 1826, University College London opened its doors to a gaggle of so-called students. The first secular university in England, it was seen as a hotbed of heathenry and loose morals. The college, named after its founder Sir Lusty Bottom Trumpet, aimed to educate the great unwashed masses in subjects like science and literature, much to the horror of decent folk everywhere. One local vicar, Reverend Nosy Parkinsniff, said, It'll be Sodom and Gomorrah here, we tell you. First they let them read books without pictures, next thing you know they'll want voting rights. The institution boasts an impressive alumni list, including such luminaries as Karl Marx, the inventor of Groupon, and Jeremy Bentham, founder of Homebase. Today UCL is better known for its rowdy bops and kebab consumption than any actual learning, but at least they can quote Chaucer while vomiting on their shoes. 
News bang, poking holes in the balloon of bullshit. Shakanaka Giles brings us the weather forecast. Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a frosty start, like a morning dip in the North Sea. But don't worry, the sun will soon peek through, warming things up like a freshly baked crumpet. Over in the Midlands, it'll be a bit of a mixed bag. Cloudy, with a chance of drizzle, a bit like a melancholic poet's mood swings. Up north, it's going to be a chilly one. Wrap up, warm folks. It's colder than a penguin's asshole. And finally, in Scotland, brace yourselves for a blustery day. The winds will be howling like a pack of rabid wolves at a full moon party. In summary, a frosty scone, moody poet, chilly penguin and a wolfish bash. Stay cosy. And that's all the weather. Nineteen seventy-nine. In a momentous turn of events, the Pahlavi dynasty of Iran has been toppled, marking the end of an era and the dawn of a new one. Rebel troops emerged victorious, overpowering loyal forces in a dramatic showdown that has left the world reeling. The Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, once a formidable figurehead, now finds himself dethroned in the wake of the Iranian Revolution of nineteen seventy-nine. As we bid farewell to the last monarch of Persia. We turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable for further insights into this historical upheaval. Here in the heart of darkness, the smell of burning hair and flaming intestines lingers like an unwelcome guest. The unquenchable flames, fueled by barrels of blood-stained petrol, illuminate a landscape devoid of hope or reason. In the distance, a battle between man and machine rages with an intensity that could wake Cthulhu himself from his watery slumber. The thunderous roar of Abrams' tanks clashes with ear-splitting screams as loyal forces meet their fiery end at the hands of relentless rebel troops. The air is heavy with lead and hate. Smoke and death cling to every surface like smog on a hot summer's day in downtown L.A., Shattered buildings bear witness to humanity's cruelty, while bloodied streets run red with testament to broken lives and fractured dreams. Yet amidst this cacophony of chaos, we find solace in small moments. Soldiers laughing as they share stories around flickering fires. Lovers embracing before facing their final moments together children crying out for parents long lost to war's merciless hunger. And so here we stand on the precipice of history being written in tears and sweat rather than ink or stone. Will we look back upon these days as marking the dawning of a new age or merely another chapter in mankind's self-destructive folly? Only time will tell. Brian Bastable, Newsbang. Ah! In a shocking and tragic event that has sent ripples of disbelief across the globe, Ozgakan Aslan, a Turkish student, was brutally murdered in an attempted rape. Her lifeless body was discovered two days later 
sparking widespread outrage and mass demonstrations throughout Turkey. The perpetrators, including the minibus driver and his accomplices, have been handed aggravated life sentences without parole. The heinous nature of this crime has cast a dark shadow over the nation, prompting urgent calls for action to address the pervasive issue of violence against women. As our correspondent Ken Shit delves deeper into this harrowing story, we are reminded once again of the enduring power of unity and resilience in the face of adversity. Ladies and gentlemen, let's take a moment to honor the memory of Osgar Khan Aslan, a brave young woman who fought for her life against the scum of the earth. On this very day, four years ago, this Turkish student was brutally murdered during a rape attempt. Her body was discovered two days later and the entire nation erupted in anger and protest. These scumbags, including the minibus driver and his filthy accomplices, were given aggravated life sentences without parole. But let's be real, folks, that's not enough. These animals deserve to rot in hell for what they did to Ozgikan. The fact that a young woman had to die just to prove a point about the horrors of sexual violence is a fucking disgrace. We need to stand up and fight against this shit, folks. We need to demand justice for Ozgikan and all the other victims of these monsters. It's time to stop letting these animals get away with their heinous crimes. It's time to make an example of them, to show the world that we won't tolerate this kind of violence anymore. Ozgikan Aslan may be gone, but her legacy will live on, and we will make sure that her death was not in vain. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that we need to fight for justice, for equality, and for the safety of all women. Let's make Ozgakan proud and work together to create a better, safer world for everyone. Uh, 1991. In a move that has the world's unheard whispering in hushed tones, the international organization, Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organization, UNPO, has risen like a phoenix from the ashes of obscurity. Founded in the administrative heart of the Netherlands, The Hague, this coalition champions the rights of indigenous peoples and minority groups, offering a voice to those entangled in territorial disputes. But who are these people? And what does it mean to be indigenous or a minority? As we grapple with these questions, let us turn our attention to reporter Hardeman Pesto for further enlightenment. I'm here in The Hague, where a new international organization has just been formed to give voice to the voiceless the Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organization, or UNPO. I spoke earlier with the UNPO Secretary General, Dr. Nigel Featherstonehaw, about their goals. Hold on, did you say Nigel Featherstonehaw? Yes, Dr. Featherstonehaw was most helpful in explaining the UNPO's mission. I find that name highly suspicious. Are we sure this isn't some crackpot organization? Well, Martin... The delegates here seem very sincere about addressing the interests of minority groups around the world, though there was some dispute over the hors d'oeuvres earlier. Let me get this straight. They can't even agree on the appetizers, but they're going to solve complex territorial disputes and represent the voiceless? I have my doubts. And I still don't believe this Dr. Featherston Hall is a real person. He assured me he is very real, though he did seem rather fixated on the tiny quiches. I suppose representing disenfranchised groups is hungry work. Pesto, this is absurd. You expect our viewers to believe a mysterious Dr. Fuddy-Duddy and his band of quiche-obsessed delegates are going to right historical wrongs? This seems more like a bad sketch comedy than serious diplomacy. 
His name is Dr. Featherstonehall, and he presented a very reasonable plan of action over dessert. Though things did get rather messy when the Cherokee representative got into the eaten mess. Enough. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor, Dutch Oven Cleaner. Yes, it gets the nasty job done. News Bang. A dose of truth to cure the common lie. For a dash of cricket history, we turn to Ryder Boff as he takes us back to 1851, when Victoria and New South Wales faced off in a thrilling match at the Launceston Racecourse in Tasmania. The year is 1851, and what a corker of a cricket match we had down under at the Launceston Racecourse in Tasmania. As part of the celebrations marking the separation of Victoria from New South Wales, it was a bat and ball bonanza that would have made even the stiffest upper lip quiver with excitement. Victoria, that petite yet bustling state, decided to throw down the gauntlet to its elder sibling, New South Wales. And where better to do it than on the hallowed turf of NTCA ground? That's right, ladies and gentlemen, this isn't just any patch of grass. It's the oldest first-class cricket ground in Australia. The very same one where men were men and sheep were nervous. Now let me paint you a picture. Burly chaps with beards you could lose a badger in, wielding willow like Excalibur itself. It was more than just a game. It was an outright declaration of, we're here, we're clear on how to play cricket. Ish. Tasmania may be an island state known for its devilish wildlife and Hobartian hospitality, but on that day, it was all about leather on willow and colonial rivalry. I remember my own brush with Tasmanian devils, not the snarling marsupials, mind you, but rather my ex-wife's relatives from Hobart. They too had quite the bite when I accidentally backed over their prized petunia patch during Christmas 89. Back to our historical match. There were no helmets or pads back then. Oh no, it was just flannelled fools versus red balls of doom. One chap got hit so hard he saw stars, thought he'd discovered a new constellation before realising it was just concussion-induced whimsy. And let's not forget Sydney as New South Wales's capital. They say if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Unless you're playing against Victoria and Tasmania, apparently. So as we raise our tankards to those trailblazing cricketers of yore who set out to conquer fields anew in 1851, let us also spare a thought for those still trying to figure out which side up these blasted sticky wickets go. Until next time when I'll bring more tales from sports-rich tapestry or perhaps another anecdote involving my second cousin, twice removed who once arm-wrestled an emu. Here to do, sister. 2001. Calamity Prenderville. Our tech-savvy reporter delves into the historical incident of the Anacornicova worm from 2001. Explore the strange tale of this tennis-inspired computer virus and the genius mind behind it. Well, hello there, chaps and chapettes. Today, we're taking a trip down memory lane to the year 2001, when a little something called the Anna Kornikova worm caused quite the ruckus. Now, I know what you're thinking. Anna Kornikova, the tennis player, what on earth does she have to do with computers? Well, let me tell you what, this wasn't just any old tennis player. Oh, no. This was a cybernetic marvel, a digital diva, if you will. 
She was the brainchild of a brilliant British inventor who decided to create the world's first sentient computer worm. The Anna Kornikova worm spread like wildfire through email attachments, infecting millions of computers worldwide. It was like a digital epidemic, but instead of sneezes and coughs, we had floppy disks and modems. But why call it a worm? Well, because just like its namesake, it wriggled its way into unsuspecting computers and made itself at home. It used these computers as hosts to infect others, creating a global network of Anna Kornikova-infested machines. Now, I know what you're thinking. Calamity, this sounds terrible. How could anyone let such a thing happen? But fear not. This was all part of a brilliant British plan to test the resilience of our computer networks. After all, what's the point of having the best technology if we don't push it to its limits? So there you have it, the Anna Kornikova worm, a digital tennis player that caused quite the stir in 2001. And now remember, if it wasn't for British innovation, we might still be dealing with this cybernetic calamity today. So next time you open an email attachment, remember, it could be worse. It could be Anna Kornikova. News Bang. The news for the blind brought to you by the sighted. Mm. 1976. In a momentous year of political upheaval, Argentina's Frente de Liberación Homosexual, a trailblazing gay rights group, made their swan song appearance before dissolving under the oppressive shadow of the 1976 coup d'etat. The coup, bereft of any discernible ideology, was a sinister cog in the Condor Plan, an insidious US-backed scheme of repressive coordination between Latin American nations during the Cold War. As we delve into the sobering tale of this courageous collective, we turn to our correspondent Smithsonian Moss for further insight. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, Newsbang Nation. Smithsonian Moss here, ready to drop some serious culture bombs on ya. Let's wind back the clock to 1976, a year that was, let's face it, gayer than a unicorn riding a rainbow. We're talking about the Frente de Liberación Homosexual, Argentina's fiercest squad of LGBTQ plus warriors, making their final stand before getting ghosted harder than your Tinder date after you double text. So picture this, bell-bottoms, disco fever, and a whole lot of mustaches. The FLH was out and proud, serving activism realness in a country that was about to get flipped upside down by a coup d'etat faster than you can say military junta. This coup was like, ideology? I don't know her. It was all part of this shady little number called the Condor Plan, where Latin American countries were getting all cozy with Uncle Sam during the Cold War. But let's not forget, the FLH wasn't just about glitter and good times. They were fighting the good fight for gay rights in a time when being out could get you more than just side-eye. They were like, we're here, we're queer, and we're not going anywhere. Well, until they did, because political repression back then was like your mom when she finds your weed stash. Not chill, babe. Not chill at all. And then, just like that, poof. The FLH was gone. Dissolved like a drag queen's contour in a rainstorm. It was a dark time, my friends. Darker than an espresso shot with a shot of nihilism. 
But let's not end on a downer. Because, like a phoenix from the ashes, the spirit of the FLH lives on, honey. Every pride parade, every rainbow flag, every time someone says, Yas, queen, that's the FLH, still marching, still fabulous. So let's pour one out for the FLH babes. They may have been silenced, but their legacy is louder than my outfit at last year's Met Gala. And remember, the fight for rights is never over, so keep strutting, keep loving, and keep being you. Until next time, stay fabulous. News bang out. News bang. The news that dares to speak its mind and speaks it loud. And now, for our final roundup of tomorrow's headlines. The Sun. NASA probe makes landing on asteroid Eros. The Mirror. First agricultural college founded in East Lansing, USA. And finally, the Financial Times. Pope and Pops hit Havana, says Bishop. That's it for tonight's Newsbang. Remember, you can't trust anyone these days, not even your own shadow. Good night and good luck. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. Thank you.